I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. The Greenhouse Show on KSL News Radio. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse. Maria Shaleos, Tom Bettis with you this morning. We're going to get right to our phone lines. We have a lot of folks that are waiting for us this morning. Wendy is in West Jordan. And good morning, Wendy. What was your question this morning? Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I love listening to you guys. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, I have uh, a couple of raised garden beds. They're eight foot by two foot by about 18 inches high. So I'm wondering the best way to to fill them. Harry, I was planning year? on putting... Pardon? We've had our computer misfiring commercials throughout the morning, Sorry so that, we apologize. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. So anyway, got a couple of raised garden beds. Uh, they're eight foot by two foot by about 18 inches high. And I was just wondering how to, um, to fill them. I was planning on putting cardboard in the bottom and then maybe a weed barrier to keep the weeds coming in. And then I've read so many things on the internet, uh, of how to fill it because I figured it would be come up to just a little bit less than a cubic yard of soil to put in it. I've read uh, stones. No, don't put stones in the bottom of it. And then I read something else about sticks to help fill up the, the, the beds and then do it with the, the really good stuff, which is expensive. It is. What is the best way to do this? So what USU would have me tell you from uh-huh. our uh, folks on campus that study this extensively, that the best thing to do is to use either a raised bed mix from the bottom up or mix your own to where if you can find something like a good sandy soil mixed one-to-one by volume with compost would be the two options. And I know both of those can be expensive. But with those beds being 18 okay. inches deep, you want a profile of about a foot of whatever material you're going to use to grow in, whether it's a sandy loam mixed with compost or just a straight raised okay. bed mix. And if you, if you have a foot of it, it uh-huh. is, it's not that it's less important, but if you have something underneath that doesn't match the texture and the components of what's above it is a little less prone because what will happen is you can sometimes create what's called a perched water table to where water 
will collect, especially if you only have four or five inches of growing mix on top, it will collect mm-hmm. in there and it has to be a hundred percent saturated before it drains through to the next layer. And so when I hear about people doing like these layered raised bed mixes, well, I've got six inches of sticks and then six inches of leaves. It, you can, mm-hmm. it can be a bad thing. You'd be better to incorporate those all together. So if you did need something in the bottom mm-hmm. that we're go- was just going to fill them up a bit, I probably would use six inches of like a half inch gravel to an inch gravel just laid oh, in and okay. then put the soil on top. And I'm not recommending doing that, but if you can find that less expensive, it's something you can do. I mean, but I would recommend filling the whole 18 inches with whatever you're going to use. But if it's too expensive, that would be my plan B. Okay. All right. Hey, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that information. All right, Wendy. Thanks so much for your call today. Next listener, Ton, is in Mona this morning, and they have texted in that they have a weeping cherry that they planted in April. The leaves are turning dark on the edges of the tree, all over the tree. Um, Any suggestions on how to help this tree be happy? Well, I would need pictures of the leaves to be sure if the entire tree is doing it, it's environmental. I will say that we need to get Sheridan or JD on because the stone fruits all over the Wasatch Front, but especially it seems like Davis, Weber, Box Elder, Cache County mm-hmm. have really took it on the nose over the winter. Mm-hmm. They're seeing a lot of death, a lot of conductive tissue damage, and just a lot of these trees, which the weeping, the ornamental cherries are in this group. It's just that they don't produce nearly as much fruit. And so... There could be something like that going on, but what I'll have them do is send an email to gardenhelp at usu.edu. Meredith Seaver monitors that, and I'll have her forward the email to me so I can look at pictures. That's Joab County is in my area of direct responsibility. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to give my email out, gardenhelp at usu.edu is much easier. Okay. I'll just have Meredith forward it to me. So Perfect. Perfect. Let's see. We have Jim on the line next in Magna. Good morning, Jim. What was your question? Well, I made it through. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I've been looking at a lot of articles online about using vinegar as a weed killer, and uh, they seem to contradict each other a lot. So I'm wondering if it makes a difference, whether you use the white distilled vinegar or apple cider vinegar. Uh, they, some of them talk about salt in the recipe, and uh, some of them say that you should only use that where you don't want that plot to ever grow again. They say spray it on a hot day. I'm not sure about how hot it could be. Okay. <laughs> I'll just let you run with it. Okay. <laughs> so don't use salt in your garden under any circumstances, especially if you have clay mm-hmm. soil. Uh, a lot of these homebrew weed killer recipes are, they. if you want to make a horticulturist skin crawl, these homebrew recipes you see online, yes, they will kill, but it's the aftermath, especially if you repeatedly use them, you know, especially with these salt recipes, you know, over four or five years, you can make your soil salty and then nothing will grow. So let me address the vinegar alone. So the type of vinegar you use 
isn't really going to make a hill of beans of difference because the vinegar itself is acetic acid. And the flavors of the vinegar, whether it's apple cider, um, the white vinegar, you know, balsamic or whatever it is, are other chemicals and things that are imparting a certain flavor to that vinegar. And so, but it's straight acetic acid is what is actually going to scorch those plants down. And so a lot of our vinegars that you buy from the store are between four and a half and about 6% acetic acid. And then they have all the other things in them that give them their wonderful flavors. I, I love balsamic vinegar to soak vegetables and things in and kind of pickle them. But I think that what's going to be more important is the recommended rate of acetic acid in a weed killer is going to be between about seven and 10% minimally and up to 20% for them to really do the job. And so a lot of off-the-shelf food-grade vinegars will scorch especially young plants down, but the ones that I guess we consider herbicide-grade are going to be between 10 and 20%. So there's that there. but And then the other aspect of vinegar is that it is not systemic. And so the vinegar chemically scorches the plants. And if you have young annuals that haven't flowered yet, it will kill them. But if you're going after something like bindweed or white top or even the uh, common mallow, you know, sometimes we call it cheese at weed, it'll scorch the top off, but they just keep coming back. And so you need to be aware of when these products need to be used. And so USU recommends that if you want to use some of these reduced risk or organic herbicides, that you purchase them from a garden center because they've been mixed accordingly, they've been tested, and you have a better chance of getting what you, you know, what you want it to do when you purchase them. And when you're mixing at home, it will probably work. And the vinegar breaks down fairly quickly in the environment, but you know, the Epsom salts and table salt, that just makes me want to start hissing and make crosses. And (laughs) it, yeah, if you want to get under my skin, start talking about putting salt in your garden. So that's an explanation of the, the vinegar, the acetic acid based products. Yeah, well, I, there are thin strips where I would like nothing to grow again along the fence and up against the foundation. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm just not up to uh, digging and pouring concrete in those places or whatever. I'm 80 years old. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and those areas, do you have any like trees, shrubs, perennials with roots growing into those areas or adjacent to them? Um, yeah. Okay. Because salt would damage them. Yeah. That's, that's one thing I was wondering about. So what I maybe would do is get something like preen or treflan or any number of other pre-emergent products and just spray those areas out with either the vinegar or roundup and then put a pre-emergent in there. And that, as long as you don't have bindweed in there, other perennial weeds, the pre-emergent will do a pretty good job of keeping the weeds out. Okay. 
Well, I, I, I think that probably covers all my questions. Okay. All right, Jim. Thank thanks you. so much for your call this morning. We need to take a break. A number to call with your questions, 801-575-8255. When we come back, Marilyn, you are going to be up next, then Scott and Ken. And you can also text us your questions, 57500. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. Thanks for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse. Maria Anton with you. Uh, let's go right back to our phone lines. We have so many callers waiting at this point in time. Uh, Marilyn is in Roy this morning. Good morning, Marilyn. What was your question this morning? Hi, I have two questions. Um, I have, first of all, let me preface everything by saying everything I have is in pot, and they're about 24 inches wide because I had a soil analysis that um, showed too much sodium, potassium, and phosphorus. So I have petunias in my front yard in the pots, and the leaves are turning kind of a yellow, lime green, and uh, but the veins in them are green. It's on a drip system, and they're watered about um, every two days for about um, probably about an hour. Um, what can I do about that? Turn my microphone on. Go me. Um, so I think... I've just been seeing, I have not watered some of my planters in the hottest part of my yard for a week because they just didn't need it. And the petunias just don't, they have thrived so far in certain areas, I think because of cool weather and maybe just a bit too much water. Now with that every other day schedule with us jumping into the mid to high eighties, maybe low nineties this coming week, some of that over a week or so may disappear. Now have you put some Osmo code or been using miracle grow or anything similar in those, in those containers? When I planted them, I put Osmo code in it and I've, I bought them at Flint Nursery, and they and I don't know what's in their fertilizer. It's a, a blue bag, but they say they use it on their plants, and I fertilize it's them. It's probably twice. Peters. There's a brand called Peters that is blue, but uh, yeah, the Osmo coat's going to be critical through the summer. But what I would say is, give it a week to ten days. Keep an eye on them and see if they start to come out of it. And if they seem to be getting worse, send some pictures over to your extension office. In, uh, let's see, what you're in, Roy? Yes. Okay. Yeah, to Weber County, to Helen, and see when their clinic's open. You can talk to some of their horticulturists and master gardeners. Now, I will say, are you in West, Roy? Um, we're right off of um, 1900, just about five blocks down from the freeway, I-15. Okay, and I'm just curious why... 
your soil has so much sodium in it. Do you know if anything was ever applied or? No, I I had it tested. Okay. Um, Um, Was it USU that tested it or who tested it? Okay. It was USU. Look up USU's fact sheet on sodium. I think it's sodium affected soils. And you can use gypsum to try to help drive some of that sodium down farther into the soil so that it's friendlier to growing things. But there potentially are some solutions to that. And you can pick up gypsum from IFA in your area, uh, maybe Dallas Greens if they're still around, J&J Nursery, Valley Nursery. So at any rate, look up USU and sodium-affected soils, and it'll give you some things to do to see if you can drive that sodium out or down. Okay. All right. Thank you. And then I have my other question is, about my tomatoes, how often do you fertilize tomatoes and what kind of fertilizer do you use? Look up USU's fact sheet on tomatoes in the garden. So you just do an internet search of USU and tomatoes in the garden, but you can fertilize them when they're first planted and maybe a few weeks later, but you don't really do a lot of fertilizer on tomatoes. Oh. Unless okay. you want a well, lot of green. Well, if they're in pots, I would, an yeah, Osmocote is going to be fine. If they're in the ground, you don't really fertilize them too much. But a liquid fertilizer or Osmocote or its competitors, you know, either of those would be fine. So they get a steady dose of nitrogen at a low level. But in the ground, you don't really fertilize them. In pots, you have to. Okay, so I put them in, I put Osmocote in when I put them in. Do I just sprinkle it around them like every two weeks or something? No, no. It, it depends on the type of Osmocote because they have anywhere from a two-month feed to a nine-month feed. But what I will say is even though it says like four months or whatever, you usually count mm-hmm. on about half of that because in the environment, the nitrogen leaches out a lot more quickly. And so if it's a four-month feed, I would use a recommended rate about every two months. Perfect. Okay. Thank All you right. so much. Thanks for your call this morning. Next listeners in the Heber Valley, uh, their yard was decimated by voles. Now the damaged areas are coming back slowly, Ton, but they're wondering if there's what fertilizer they could use to help. Sounds like their lawn, right? I would try, to, if you still have tracks, maybe get some native soil from around where they live and fill those tracks in with a rake. And the grass itself will fill in. Dave's back there making vole death mm-hmm. signs to us. But... Uh, the grass itself will fill in, but I would. And there are questions about what seed to use. No, what fertilizer? What they fertilizer could use to help it out? Just any lawn fertilizer is fine. There isn't fine. a magical lawn fertilizer, but it's more we important really want they one, get okay. something on. All right, Scott is in Mapleton. I'm going to try and squeeze him in here before the top of the hour. Uh, Scott, what was your question this morning? Hello. Good morning, Scott. What was your question this morning? Hey, so I am a certified arborist. I was uh, out looking at a client's uh, honey locust tree, and there was no signs of boars, no signs of any um, galls or leaf curl or anything like that, but the entire crown of the tree is is very, very thin. Um, it was about 15 inches uh, trunk diameter at breast height, and looking at it deeper, we we realized that there was uh, some weed fabric around the trunk of the tree. So I recommended the removal of that to help help the tree revive and come back. And as I was driving away, I noticed another tree just 
I don't know, a block down the street that looked exactly the same. So I'm, I just thought I'd call in and see if there was anything else that you would recommend that you I know of. I um, have seen I might not be aware of. something like this a couple of times. And it seems like every time we drop our temperatures drop to zero or negative, you know, we go from moderate to really cold. And then with the weird seasons we've been having that we've been seeing honey locusts all over the Wasatch front that a lot of them are healthy, but a lot of them have really thin canopies, dead limbs. And I think it's environmental damage to where, especially honey locusts, even though they're drought hardy, they don't seem to like going into the winter drought stressed. And if they were stressed for any reason, and then we got those sub-zero temperatures over the winter, that seems to have done a lot of damage to them environmentally. And I remember I was still up in Logan uh, serving with USU up there, and this happened. And there was just a lot of trees. A year or two later, we saw bark sloughing off. But you see this neighbor in entire neighborhoods, and we've been seeing some damage in other trees, like I mentioned the stone fruits. But I think this winter was just really hard on them. Okay. Um, what recommendations would you give at this point for a tree like this? Water deeply, but not more often. Just make sure that every few weeks are being watered to a depth of 24 inches, depending on what the lawn irrigation is like. Put some lawn fertilizer around them to see if you can generate some new growth and new conductive tissue, but that's about all you can do. Okay. All righty. Thank you very much. All right, Scott. Thanks for your call this morning. Next listener, Ton, was wondering, they have a cashmere cedar that has lost its needles. It looks like it's dying, but just the top of the tree. It was planted in 2007. They're wondering if you would think that could be saved. Maybe, but if those needles needles are dropping and they're seeing no growth, then what they would probably have to do is prune that out and see if the tree will generate more growth. Um, So don't give up on it yet. Don't give up on it see if you get new needles, but that's about all they can really do. All right. We're going to take a break for the news. Uh, We'll be back with more on the KSL Greenhouse. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.